Hello and welcome back to the third and final episode of the Vendor Wag with Liquid Wear Labs. I've been very good making sure I don't fall over the words Liquid Wear Labs because I was saying just a moment ago if you said it fast enough it could be a bit of a tongue twister. Now this portion of the video series is a practical demo, see the product in action. Although it was felt that it was a good idea to have like a kind of just recap of the architecture of Profile Unity uh, together with some of the other technologies. I'm in very, very capable hands because I actually have the CTO drum roll, of Liquid Layer Labs on, uh, online. And I was saying, um, I were off the uh, line a second ago that it's rare to get a CTO who actually drives a demo because normally the CTO is the person who knows the least about the product because they've turned into Mr. PowerPoint and Slagware person. So it's nice to, to meet a CTO and have a CTO on the show because it's always nice to meet senior people. But also that, that they've still got a hand on the tiller, I think is a, is a good sign in any organization. So his name is Jason Mattox. Jason, can you uh, introduce yourself to people listening in? Just tell us a little bit about who you are, where you're from, and then really the ball is in your court in terms of driving the rest of the, the session. Sure. Thanks, Mike. Well, like you said, I'm CTO here at Liquid Labs. been here for uh, the fifth year now. And uh, prior to Liquid Labs, um, I go back to kind of Vision Core days and ESX Ranger and backing up ESX 2.5 all the way through ESX 4 and 5. So I've been in the virtualization space for a long time. But what's really interesting that I, that I like that draw me to Liquid Labs was in the 90s, I did Metaframe, WinFrame installations and um, managed a lot of customer environments as a consultant. So all the problems that we're solving here at Liquid Labs with these uh, products that we have are problems that have been around for a long, long time. So it's really exciting to kind of go back to my roots around the, the hosted desktop or the desktop in the data center, server-based computing, whatever you call it nowadays, um, and kind of solve the same problems with uh, a lot of neat technology uh, that we've kind of developed and, and acquired over the years. So I'll jump into architecture really quick before I get into a product demo. Uh, the architecture just helps level set you know, how the product functions, how it works, how it would look, work in your infrastructure, and how it compares to other products on the market. So, you know, Profile Unity itself is a user environment management tool. Um, what does that mean? That means we can manage the user environment. We can replace rowing profiles with something uh, much more uh, stable and, and easier to use. And we also have a layering technology built in uh, called FlexApp. So, when I look at the Profile Unity architecture, there's a few components that we use. We have a web console. This is an HTML5 web console that self-installs, just next, next, finish through it. Goes on a Windows 2008 or 2012 server. Then we have a distributed architecture here where we actually can detach the rest of the, the, the product from the main console. So the client files, the configurations, the policies, the application delivery, the user profiles, user data are actually detached from the Profile Unity console. So the first file share that I have here, this is where the agent would install from to the desktop or server-based computing OS, Zen app, Zen desktop, view, physical, virtual, doesn't matter. The agent files would exist here, the configurations and policies. Generally, we like to sit on the net log on file share because it's already self-replicated and self-scaled based on the customer's infrastructure. So that's where we like to put these things. Uh, it doesn't have to go there. It can go in a different DFS or some other HA file share as well. 
And then we have where the user home directory lives. You likely already have this in your environment. You've got an H drive where you store user profiles and user data today. And then there might be a final file share if you're leveraging our layering technology. Our layering technology can exist within a virtual disk. We attach a virtual disk from inside the guest operating system when it comes to VHD. And this means we can support any broker, any hypervisor, even physical machines, and we can layer in applications with our FlexApp technology. Um, Profile Disk is also a new addition to the product uh, as of October last year. Profile Disk is the ability to store the entire profile on a virtual disk so that basically you get the fastest login times possible. And when we provide a profile disk on a VHD or a VMDK, uh, we're not in the middle of that process. It's basically native Windows performance uh, for that profile. So we can leverage the profile disk, which is basically the easy button. The entire profile is captured. It's a local profile that roams, if that makes sense. A local profile mm -hmm. that roams because we reattach the VHD to a different operating system but it lives and breathes like a local profile. So that's really unique for us uh, in this infrastructure. And like I said, after these things are set up and configured, you can take the Profile Unity Console and you can turn it off. There's no SQL clustering required for this infrastructure, this architecture. There's no man in the middle. The agent talks to the file share, gets us instructions that it needs, and executes. So that's with uh, the VHD technology. Now, I move into VMDK, things change a little bit. When I leverage a virtual disk, and this kind of goes into our experience here in developers and technology and from the Vision Core ESX Ranger days, we leverage a lot of that knowledge of the hypervisor and VMDK manipulation to provide a highly available system because we have to talk to Virtual Center. We have to tell Virtual Center what desktop you're on, what server you're on, and what disks should be hot added and attached to your desktop. So what we've done is we've created a point-and-click clustering system out of the box. You install Profile Unity three times on three Windows OSs. The way that that server then is sliced up is you have the Profile Unity Management Console in kind of this purplish here. You have the blue, which is the FlexDisk service. It's responsible for talking to Virtual Center and issuing the API calls to Virtual Center to attach and detach disks. Um, we also have a fabric. The fabric is where the messages are sent from the desktop or from the view broker or uh, depending on how it's set up, to the fabric, and then FlexDisk will then grab the message off the fabric and process it. What's interesting about this architecture is that it's a multicast. So if I've got three nodes or I've got 20 nodes for scalability purposes, all 20 nodes will have a copy of that message instantaneously. It's not replicated, it's a multicast. So what that means is if a node goes down in the middle of attaching a disk or uh, uh, initially attaching a disk or about to attach a disk, we will actually pick up that request where it left off and add it back. So, and then we have the database, which is self-replicated. Database is a NoSQL database. It's a MongoDB database. And we've gone this route because it avoids schema. So we don't have to worry about updating a schema and breaking something in the environment when we go through upgrade processes. This allows us to develop much quicker and be more agile, not being locked into a fixed schema layout within the database. So that, that's really exciting for us. Um, this point-and-click architecture can scale out to 50 nodes whether you've got 5,000, 10,000, 20,000 desktops, we can scale out. And the best part is there's no external F5 load balancers or SQL clusters required to make this scale. And this is all for the layering technology and or the profile disk. You want to leverage your 10 gig fiber, whatever you have connected, your high-speed storage, SSD, flash, nimble, uh, Nutanix. You've got all this investment in the back-end storage. And you want to leverage that for the disk delivery for the application layers and for the profiles 
we can take advantage of that. Um, obviously, VHD is much, much simpler in architecture because you literally have a detached architecture where this is a fully integrated architecture. Okay. So, enough of uh, slideware. Let's jump into uh, kind of what things look like inside the console. So, this is the Profile Unity Management Console. And a good segue is kind of jump into the administration section. And this is what the, what the clustering looks like. I've got three node clusters set up. And I can see in my three node cluster the flex disk, the fabric, and the database are all green. If any of these things go red, I then will get an email alert that I'm, I'm reducing my functionality. I'm degraded performance. So I can come in and address and see what's happening if the server got shut off or another virtual administrator deleted the whole server, which happens. Um, you know, at least I can, I can know when this event happens. There's no point in have a clustering system that can't communicate to you when it's going down. <laughs> so that's, that's important on that side of it. So when I come into the product, I get this control panel type look. And this control panel look is all the UEM functionality within the product. I can manage printers, drives, shortcuts. Um, I can do all these things. And, and somebody will say, well, Active Directory can do some of these things. And you're absolutely right. Active Directory can do some of these things. But there's things it can't do. So I can do all these different functionality, user-defined scripts. Um, I can start applications. I can create shortcuts, drives, printers. I can do some of this during login, after login, to give the best user experience. One of the key things that applies to both layering, application layering, and to the environment management piece is the filter management. The filter management is basically a list of things that I want to be true or false, and to make a decision on if I should apply a shortcut, a drive, a printer, a policy, or an application. Active Directory is based on user group and OU and machine group. Other than that, you're doing custom WMI scripting. With this infrastructure, I have over 300 different ways I can decide to make a decision. I can say your view client IP address or Citrix client IP address is at home, not on my corporate network, so I'm not going to deliver certain applications to you. Um, I can decide day of week, time of week. I can look at LDAP attributes. If you're a college, you might have extra metadata in Active Directory for LDAP. I can look at a files or directories if a service exists. If TP Auto Connect for View then print service exists, then I can write a script that says stop that service because I don't need it for zero clients. You know, so there's a lot of different functionality and things. If a registry key exists, if an environment variable exists, organizational unit and logon domain MAC address and, and so on and so forth. So this is a really powerful rules engine around making decisions and how I should deliver something based on who you are, where you are, and what you're doing. So this is a really cool uh, filtering system here. So I go back into my configurations again, and I'm looking at, well, let's deliver an application layer. Well, uh, I, w I went ahead and I packaged some applications. They show up in my inventory. These are all the applications I've packaged ahead of time. And packaging process is actually really simple um, in nature. I basically have a packaging console here. This packaging console sits on a clean Windows machine um, that basically has nothing installed. And I go through and I say, I'm going to create a package. And I give it a little bit of information. I give it a name. I give it a, a path, whether it's VHD or VMDK, flex disk. Uh, I select the size, whether it's compressed or expandable or fixed disk or not. And then I just I click Create and I hit Next, Next, Finish through the package. And then now the package is then put into inventory. And this packaging console is completely stateless. It communicates with the backend console you see behind it. So all these applications you see in the packaging console are available within the web UI for delivery. Okay, and, and then I can come into my configuration. 
I can go ahead and go to FlexDisk DIA, add an application rule, and I can basically drag and drop the applications that I want to deliver to my users. And I can select a different filter type, Windows XP, Windows 7, uh, whether or not if it's Virtual Center Client installed or not, if I should do a trigger point, Office 2016, if 2016 is installed, install these applications too. So this is where I can deliver all my different layers of technology. And so what does it look like you know, from a user point of view once I deliver these applications? Well, the applications are completely native to a user point of view. I've got a desktop here, and I've delivered some shortcuts. I've delivered some applications. And when I look inside of the system, and these 7-zip is layered, uh, WinRAR is layered, I've got uh, Real Paint and uh, layered as well. So a bunch of applications, they look normal. Everything looks like it's installed in the system, but it's really not. You know, this basically there's a, a virtual registry and virtual files involved. So the application looks like it's native, it acts like it's native, you know, so the system doesn't know any wiser. Um, and what's really interesting about what we've done is we have technology called micro-isolation when it comes to application layering. And application layering um, is a new way to deliver applications. You know, the applications are truly non-persistent in nature when you deliver them. And what's nice about this is it's a consistent application delivery every time, and you keep the applications out of the base image. You keep your base images down, because if you think about it, the, the utopia would be one base image for every department, but then deliver the applications real-time based on user and group and or some other criteria. So sales, accounting, engineering, development, marketing, they all can share the same base image, but they all get their own unique applications delivered. So it keeps the number of pools you have down either VMware or Citrix. So what are two things we're solving with micro-isolation when it comes to layering? Well, we're solving the conflicts of applications that natively exist. When I have two applications on a native machine, you know, just regular Windows, I try to install them. They both want to write to System32. They want to write my DLL version 4 and version 5. And those applications, you're going to have to figure out how to separate those applications and deliver them with ThinApp or with ZenApp or RDSH or some other way. Well, we actually detect that conflict real-time of those applications, and we micro-isolate. We tell those applications that you're not going to use layer A version or layer B version. You're going to use your own version of that DLL, and I'm going to forward you back to yourself. Now, remember, we're not full-blown isolation. We are Layering is all about native delivery of applications to increase the compatibility. And, but we've added a touch of isolation to that native delivery so that the applications can be the most compatible without hindering the, the, uh, the extensiveness of compatibility. And another thing we're solving is something layering introduced. So new technology introduces new problems and challenges. So when you have layering and you deliver applications via layer, um, two installers are basically installed and captured and put into a layer independent of each other. Well, if you take two applications and install them together on a regular machine like a laptop or a Windows server or a terminal server or RDSH, when you install the two applications, the installers will detect things already in the OS. And when they detect these things in the OS, they will then augment and change your behavior. Well, when you install them separately into independent layers, not aware of each other, you then create conflicts. And other vendors are going to say, well, to solve that, put them in a big layer. Well, one big giant layer creates a house of cards because now you've moved the problem from the base image to a bunch of big giant layers that where if you update one app you could break another. 
the goal would be I'm delivering independent layers of each other, and those independent layers are being delivered. And once they're delivered, um, they they uh, they don't they, they won't conflict in a way. So we can handle that conflict and then push them back to themselves is what we can do. Um, so I'm going to show you an example of this because it's really hard to see this technology because it's automatic. It's it's almost like magic. It's automatic in the background, happening automatically. And other products will tell you to make big layers. They tell you to turn the apps on and off real time and hope Windows will be okay with it. Um, they might say choose the priority, which layer wins, and and or and or analyze the layers post deployment and find the conflicts. Those are all flawed because when those are flawed, you know, because you're doing all this post delivery, the problem's already occurred. Let's handle it up front before the problem occurs, before the administrator or the end user has a bad experience, so you don't have to go back and augment your strategy. So let's let's take a look at what this looks like. And I know that was a long explanation, but I wanted to dive into it. Oh no, really no, important. makes sense. Yeah, thanks. So um, how can we visually see this? So there's kind of two examples that I have. Um, I've got a couple zip programs here, and when these zip programs were layered into the OS, they had a version of a zip file that they wanted to bring in. Just and this is this is hypothetical because I forced this to happen. Mm. They both wanted to bring in a folder and a file called mystuff.zip. And they, it's literally on the, in the system, each layer has its own version of the zip file. If I open it up in one program, I see files one, two, and three. If I open up another zip program, it has four, five, and six. So the point is that the path is identically the same. The file is exactly the same, but these are independent layers. WinZip and WinRAR are on their own layers. They're being told to go back inside their own layer to get that file which could be a DLL, which could be a registry key. This is just a visual example of what that would look like. Now, here's, here's even a better one. It's a little more visual than this. I like this one because this one's also kind of fun to look at cool cars. Um, we look at uh, a paint program, these two paint programs here. And same thing occurred. These particular paint programs wanted their own version of this JPEG. So on the C drive, I've got a directory called CarPick, and I've got this one has a Ferrari in it. So this version of the DLL is, you know, 4.5.2 or whatever, and it's the Ferrari version of that DLL. Well, this paint program wanted a Lamborghini version of that DLL. And it's literally the exact same file on the file system, but again, inside the layers, it's two different versions. So the applications are told to go back to themselves to pull the version. And we'll look at that again real quick. We'll look and see this path here, and then we'll look at it here as well. And you'll see that basically that this path is on the C drive. It's the exact same path and directory, but it's two different versions of the file. Mm. So that's a little bit more visual way to see it. Um, so we need to imagine that with a DLL as opposed to an image picture. It, that's exactly right. Yeah. So it's hard to show the DLL example, right? You have to show things a little bit more technical, mm. and things get really, really in-depth developer you know, stuff real quick. <laughs> <laughs> so we try to avoid that and make it a little more visual. Um, and then, you know, to, to kind of show you know, what does this look like uh, maybe from a, a disk point of view. This is always interesting, too, as well, for the techies out there to kind of see. You know, in Disk Manager, you know, like I said earlier, the goal is to have a good lifecycle management practice and manage uh, application layers independent of each other for the most flexibility uh, and, and the least amount of overhead for the administrator. So you will see VHDs inside the system. You know, Microsoft has like a limit of 2,000 block devices it can mount 
from a VHD point of view, and even SCSI devices, I or ones and things like that. But in, in a VMVK situation, we have a limit of four SCSI controllers, 15 SCSI IDs per controller, total of 60 IDs available for 60 disks. Uh, in that situation, two of them are usually taken from the operating system. And so we have about 58 available slots. So we could deliver 58 disks to a desktop, 58 layers. Um, and we can also combine layers as well. If you felt there was a use case that you should put layers together, we can do that as well. We can do either or. We just like to promote something that the competitors really aren't doing, which is a better lifecycle management process for independent application layers. So if you look in here, here's a few disks I have. I've got a bunch of apps that are snapped in. And then I've also got a profile disk as well. So my whole profile is on a, a VHD that roams, the local profile that roams. And then if I look inside of Edirub programs, this is always a good one too, I can see that the applications look and feel normal. So I've got you know, a couple uh, applications here. And then if I actually go in, and I close that, let me open that back up. And what I can do is I can turn off our service and everything will just disappear from the operating system. Because again, it's a virtual file system, virtual registry. And what I'll do as well is we'll open up uh, program files so we can see kind of the change here as well. So we'll go over to our services. And we will jump into the container service and we will basically stop this. And you see directories vanish there. And then you see basically the, the directories vanish here. So from, from my point of view, this, is, uh, this isn't what a user would see, but this is what happens at logoff. The machines are cleaned out, and these shortcuts are what users created. Uh -huh. So if users create shortcuts on layers, um, if the shortcuts are created by the layer, those will disappear as well. But if the shortcuts are created by the user, I would actually have to use Profile Unity, UEM functionality, I could create a rule to go clean out those shortcuts, you know, because they were not managed by the layer. Mm -hmm. So I could actually go do that just in case. So it's kind of a... Uh, it's nice to have them both products tied together because I can kind of clean things up the users have done to the system. Um, so that that's uh, the layer inside there. Um, if we looked at the flex disk portion briefly, you know this is where um, a lot of our federal customers like to to do things in the product, um, mainly because they can't have removal devices and VHDs are considered to be removal devices. Ah. And then we have yeah, so VHDs actually get blocked. Uh, in, in federal federal space, so VMDKs are paramount for them. Um, and then if you've invested a lot of money in storage, you want to leverage the performance you have there. So in here, I can actually see what disks have been provisioned. I can see what active connections I have open. So I see there's an open connection for this user um, for this, and I can see that he's got an application called Handbrake, and it's on this peak NFS volume, and this uh, browser is attached as well. Um, and then I can also do an event monitor, and I can say, well, in the last 30 days, what things have taken place, and how long has it taken to deliver these disks? So how long did it take Virtual Center to attach these disks? You know, it took two seconds here, one second here, eight seconds here. So I get a feel for how things are going and what events have happened in the system. Um, so it's, it's much more advanced in the VMDK side, mainly because there's so many layers between us and that VMDK. So we've got to bridge that gap and provide functionality. Um, so we're really excited about this, and we've got a lot of customers going into production right now uh, with this technology. And we've also got the ability to attach now as well. So I actually can do attach apps while users are in session, 
Uh, it works good, but you know, obviously there might be limitations with certain applications just appearing or Windows itself. Uh, but you can basically attach now uh, applications real time, and um, that's the, the flex disk portion of things. And uh, that's the the demo, Mike. Thank you very much for that. Uh, people who are watching will notice that I kept on sort of ducking down to to write little questions along the way because I didn't want to interrupt. Uh, Jason while he was doing his demo because uh, that could sometimes uh, throw you off. So um, I've got about uh, five little questions and hopefully they'll, you know the answers to them will be relatively quick but we'll see how we get on. I noticed in the filter different you know different things you could filter on that you had laptop and I was curious to know how, how do you ID a laptop because you know from a functionality perspective a desktop and a laptop how do we even ID the difference? Did, won't they just come across as any old PC? A battery. Oh, yeah, of course. <laughs> yeah. An average desktop yeah. wouldn't have a battery, would it? So that's a yeah, kind exactly, of registry exactly. checker for if battery exists type thing. Yeah, it's probably like a WMI query, you know, for battery because, you know, Windows is always aware, you know, down here of your status of your battery, how much power you have left and things like that. So yeah. uh, it's part of it. Part of the system WMI, yeah. And then the other question I had is around, and this might be my misunderstanding around various terms that you have. You have the VHD, you have a VMDK, and there's also this thing called a flex disk. Now, is flex disk more of a kind of product marketing term to describe how you manage VHD and VMDK, or is it a type of disk in its own right? I'm a bit confused by the, the term flex disk. Sure. So, so FlexDisk is the automation engine that attaches hypervisor-based storage. Mm -hmm. So I say it that way because VMDK is our first hypervisor-based storage. Um, it's possible new tags, Acropolis might be next on that list um, with KVM. It's possible that the next, hy next hypervisor-based attached disk could be Hyper-V. Um, so FlexDisk is the umbrella for hypervisor-based activity. Yeah, Understood. Exactly. The other thing I thought was interesting about that was uh, in the previous session we were talking about why you would want to choose one over the other, how maybe VHD is easier to sort of get on board with initially because it's inside the guest OS and things like it. Um, and then I was asking the question, why, why would you use VMDK? And there was a little bit of debate about potentially the performance might be better with VMDK because of the nature of your storage system. But one thing I was really picked up on very quickly was your reference to certain federal government, and I imagine they'll be the same here for GCHQ or whatever, mm -hmm. that removable devices, which is how VHDs are classed, may not be allowed, and the yeah. actual engine that allows that mounting to occur might be turned off. Is that correct? Am I understanding that right? Yep, that's exactly right. So we actually, um, in a VMDK or VHD scenario, they're mounted fully read-write, but every user has their own write cache that's thrown away when they log off. Mm. So VHDs are considered to be a read-write removal device. Now, if it was read-only, then they would work. But the problem is, you know, five years ago when we started this whole thing around layering, the the mounted application layer can't be read-only to the OS. Mm. Applications just freak out. Yeah. <laughs> they've got to appear read-write. Because they've got so to create temporary files and stuff like that, haven't they? Exactly right, yep. So. We, uh, we have this write cache that's created. So with VHDs, we have a differencing disk per user. 
everybody reads from the same VHD, but each user has their own write cache that's differencing disk thrown away. And then with um, VMDK, we use a little trick called independent non-persistent mode. So that way we have a redo log for each desktop reading the same VHD, VMDK, and then that redo log is then thrown away when the, the machine shuts down. You know what? That that reference to independent, uh, what was the phrase again? Non-persistent. Non-persistent. That really takes me back because I used to have to explain all these different disk modes yep. when I was a VCI. And I had to remember all the different tanks and what would happen if you did X, Y, and Z. So that's a bit of a blast for the past for me. What, uh, th well, that's where, it, that's where it came from for us because we knew that dealing with snapshots in backups back in the day, certain customers could turn that on for certain disks and turn off snapshot ability on certain volumes they didn't want to have snapshots on, yeah. right? So we, we remember all that stuff from the ESX, old ESX days. Back in the old days. Now, the other thing that you showed was two applications side by side, and that was an illustration of how... Um, DLL conflicts can occur, but how the technology deals with those. But that started me thinking about file associations, which has historically always been an issue. Even if you just install a Windows PC, the order by which you install applications, you get one app stealing the file associations from another. It's almost like a, a fight between the two applications, who owns that file extension. So if I do have two zip-based utilities, or two utilities that can open up a JPEG, how, is there somewhere in the system I can say which is the preferred one on a, a per-use basis? How do I deal with file associations? Yep, so the file associations right now would be last last, last one wins. Mm. So what we would happen, actually I take that back, first one wins, mm. first one in wins. Mm. And what we would do is in the next version coming out uh, next quarter, you'll see a new icon pop up here in the, in the console for a file association uh, module. Right. And then you'll be able to control that completely, especially on a terminal server is really, we really need it. Um, because on a terminal server, you may have Acrobat Pro for a subset of people and Acrobat Reader for everybody else. Um, so you want to control that per user group. Mm. So we'll have that functionality. It's actually already done internally in QA. Yeah. So. I mean, I remember this sort of file association stuff with published applications in Citrix presentation service. They had method of doing it. Incidentally, the fact that I focused on file associations wasn't me trying to find uh, things missing in the product because I don't know it well enough to actually know whether what what the support was. There was a genuine interest. So it's interesting that you're you're working on that. Last question. Um, you know, all these different um, vo uh, layers, volumes, whatever you want to call them, are being mounted to the guest OS in the case of BHD. Um, do you have any guidelines around the controller type that's used inside the virtual machine? Because prior to layering, you know, maybe a VM would have a boot disk. Maybe you'd relocate the swap file. It depends whether you think that's really important. Se certainly a separate disk for holding data. But the idea that a virtual machine might have 10, 20, 30, 40 uh, disks mounted to it seems to me quite a lot. Is there a performance hit with having that many different volumes mounted and uh, accessible? Do we have to worry about performance? Do we have to worry about what controller type we use inside the, mm -hmm. the operating system? I mean, for example, uh, VMware supports the para-virtual format for the controller which has been shown in some cases, not all, some cases can actually improve performance. Do you, do mm -hmm. you, is there, am I picking up on a chimera here that I shouldn't worry about? 
or is there optimization that can be done in that process? Yeah, there's um, there's some research that has been done, but not anything definitive that there is a degradation of performance once you get up into the higher echelon of disks um, and multiple controllers. Mm. Um, nothing been totally proven yet, because what's also interesting is every disk you allocate to Windows, VHD or VMDK, Windows will set aside 256 megs of RAM for common NTFS reads that occur. Right. So if you think about it, generally you have one OS disk, and it might set aside 256 megs of RAM for the OS and all the apps in it. Mm. So we literally have a slight cache for every single app there. So once you open the app, and I proved this by putting an app over an 8 meg pipe, and where I put iTunes over an 8 meg pipe, and it took forever to open the first time, second time it opened instantaneously mm. because of that cache. And so it generally shouldn't be that big of a deal post-first open. Uh, but to your question about the controller type, VHDs leverage the Microsoft Virtual HBA controller. Mm. So that's just a built-in Windows uh, HBA specifically designed for VHDs. Um, we have noticed that Windows 10 is twice as fast as Windows 7 wow. when it comes to disk management, so attaching disks, because everybody wants instant login, right? So it's always a big request. So when we're looking at uh, attaching a lot of disks or putting a profile on a VHD or VMDK, we're always looking at how long it takes Disk Manager to do its thing. Mm. And we've noticed that it's twice as fast in Windows 10, so that's a good improvement over Windows 7. And then from a VMware point of view, definitely a, just a regular SCSI controller is fine because we want those 15 available IDs. Mm. And I think what's interesting for us is we can add the IDs um, and we can add the controllers to the machine. Uh, where other products can't even do that. And when we also format and manage the VHDs and VMDKs for you. There's no template disk that you have to upload. So we literally can format a disk of any size we want, uh, attach it. We can also mix and match. You could decide that you've got an application that's a VHD-based, network-based, because that's okay with you. And you've got high-fiber-attached high SSD over here, and you're going to put some VMDKs over here for certain apps that need higher speed performance. So we can literally mix and match. The system is fully flexible, too. All right. Well, thank you very much for answering that those questions. And thank you very much for the demo. We'll keep it short and sweet. But thank you very much for your time today, Jason. It's been really interesting. Yeah, thanks, Mike. It was a lot of fun. Cheers. Thank you.